Well, hi everybody, it's Alex Santipas from Mesla Americas again. Welcome to another episode of Automation 101. And today we're very excited. We have our first international guest all the way from across the pond, so to speak. We have Dan all the way in Manchester in the UK. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Alex. Really looking forward to having this chat. So, Dan, you know, I've got a set of questions I always ask, but I think the first question I'm going to ask you, are you, are you a blue or are you a red? <laughs> that is a great question. Actually, I was born in Liverpool, so I could choose the blue or the red team from uh, from Liverpool. I could also choose the blue or the red team here from Manchester. But I think in order to avoid any kind of controversy, I will uh, keep quiet on uh, on that one. <laughs> I will state I'm a big Liverpool fan. Yeah, so I'm definitely on the red from, from, yeah. from Mercedes side. So, okay, we'll go with that then, no worries. <laughs> and apologies to our US viewers who don't understand what we're talking about. But anyway, let's let's get started then. So one of the first questions I always ask is about um, how to define lab automation. So, so in my experience and conversations with other people also in this industry, not just, you know, with, with customers, so to speak, when you say and you mention the words lab automation, people have this very unrealistic, I would say, picture about it. So yeah. how do you define it then to paint a more accurate and more realistic picture? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a really broad topic when you think about lab automation. It can cover so many different things, but you know, essentially it's technology that helps you as a scientist to either free up more time to get more stuff done, um, or to do things better or in a way that just wouldn't be you know, possible by hand. So, you know, that can be things like being more precise, uh, more reproducible, having less errors. My area is uh, is liquid handling and, <coughs> excuse me, no scientist that I've ever spoken to has ever said that they got into science because they love pipetting. Right. You know, it just, <laughs> it just doesn't happen, you know. Um, and... Some people still have a fear of of kind of automating, and um, some of that fear is is justified. But you know, I think about it in this way: you know, automation and lab automation is all around us anyway. You know, as a scientist, when was the last time that you sort of took a PCR tube and manually transferred that between different water baths to get your PCR reaction to take place? You know, you would never think about. Um, doing a manual PCR, it's just automated. So the cutting edge things of today kind of become the the run of the mill things for tomorrow. So that's sort of what I, the way that I would kind of present lab automation, maybe to somebody that was a little bit skeptic or didn't really have a clear idea of, of what it is. It's something that's there to really help you out and save you time, allow you to do better things than pipetting by hand or right. moving tubes between water baths. And, and it, it's quite interesting because when you think, when you add the word lab to it, I think that's what tends to scare people. Because if we just think, you know, just generally, I mean, I can't live without my iPhone, for example. You know, I go yeah. to Starbucks, I order my coffee beforehand. You know, and, and, and that's all, you know, these are all automated solutions, so to speak. So we, we do it every single day in our private life, so to speak. But you add the word, I think, lab to it, and suddenly there's a little bit of... Uh, fear to a certain extent for some people yeah completely and you know some some of that fear is uh, is justified but i think when when you start to help people break it down and really understand that you know it doesn't have to be these huge great big multi-million dollar systems it can be 
really small incremental steps to help your lab improve and to do things better, then then it really starts to make sense for people. Okay. So taking your definition then of lab automation, I think so far what I've seen, at least there are two key barriers uh, to implementing a solution. You know, those two being cost and complexity. Those are the two that come up most of the time in my conversations. I think there's possibly also a third one, which I call complacency, that get very stuck in their ways. I say many times that we are, you know, creatures of habit. We just get used to what we're doing. Yeah. So to that end, imagine now we have a, let's say, small to medium-sized lab. They're not big, they don't have the budgets of the big boys or anything like that. But, you know, they're relatively profitable. They're doing what they're doing. They're doing it relatively well. Uh, they've got their manual processes down to a T, you know, and they just, that's what they're doing, sort of, you know, we're yeah. okay, we're happy. How do do you now, or us as an industry, let's say, how do we convince labs like that, which I think there's a lot more like that, to be honest, than the ones who are uh, mm. you know, open and embracing automation. How do you get those guys now to say, you know, wait a second, I, I really need an automated solution, not necessarily the entire lab, maybe just a particular workflow and so forth, but how do we convince them otherwise? Yeah, I mean, that's a really enviable position, I think, to be in for somebody to be so, you know, so happy and comfortable and not need to worry about anything at all in the world. So, um, you know, science is really about pushing boundaries. So, you know, looking for the next discovery, going beyond you know what you can imagine today. But scientists themselves, like you said, are often very kind of cautious about change and about bringing something new in. Um, and there's often this kind of attitude of, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, you know, in a lab, bringing change in, you know, at best, it can be a lot of paperwork. At worst, you know, it can really sort of disrupt and and break these, you know, the, the um, established protocols that have been put in place and create a lot of hard work and a lot of headaches. So um, what I would say to these people is, you know, don't really think about where you are now. You know, where you are now is in a good place, but you can't stand still and think about where you want to be in the future. So, you know, whether it's six months down the line or in a few years, really, you know, try to sort of envision what, um, you know, what you want to be able to do in the lab, what you want to um, be achieving and think about maybe some of the, the things that might come up in the future. So it may be that, you know, you've got some fantastic staff here right now who are very good at what they're doing. But, you know, what if um, you know they're sort of coming up to retirement age? We can kind of bring um, the benefits there to, uh, to sort of help um, insulate against some of those um, unforeseen things that can come up, uh, those bumps in the road as you're, uh, as you're going along. And another thing that I would say is, Again, it doesn't have to be these huge, great big systems with loads of different components and parts that are all interacting and talking to each other. Those systems are very cool, but you can start very, very small and test and build up that capability um, in a very um, accessible kind of way. Yeah. Um, your key phrase that you said there was, you know, you can't stand still. Yes. You know, and that's true. I mean, I think sometimes we forget you know, labs are also businesses. Yeah. And, uh, okay, sure. We talk about, you know, you know, innovation and, and so on and so forth, but you're also a business. And if you're, 
if you're not going with the times, you're not advancing and, and making progress, you're going to be overtaken at some point. And the reality is maybe you don't exist very long as a result. Yep. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, when when you think about the the systems that are being put in place and, again, sort of going back to these these big integrated systems, which really do have a place in some labs, you know, I was talking to uh, uh, an, a user, a customer of ours um, a little while ago who had um, a really state-of-the-art piece of equipment. It was lots of different components that were all talking to each other, but um, they were lamenting that because if they just weren't able to to use it to the the best of its capabilities, and really, if they you know when they took a step back from it, what they would have chosen to do in a different situation is to actually have something that was a lot more flexible and modular, so that they could really. Um, take advantage of all of the different individual components in that uh, in that big system. Um, so you know, even in our hypothetical perfect lab that we're uh, that we're talking to, you know, the question that I'd ask is, you know, what's one headache that you've got right now that you could, if you could solve it, what would that be? And even in the most perfect lab, um, you know, I'm sure there would be one or two things where we could sort of say, right, let's dig in a little bit deeper and see if there's something, a solution there that can be um, beneficial for you. Sure, I'm sure you find that pain point, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And then I think the other thing as well is that, again, scientists are, um, there's this fantastic community out there and, and scientists um, are often talking about the uh, the discoveries that they're making and things like that. When um, you then think about the labs that those scientists are working in, they can be quite insular and quite um, self-contained. So another piece of advice I would give is to, to go out there and actually talk to people. Um, you know, there are forums online, so you can you don't even have to leave the house. You can have converse, great conversations. Um, but go to conferences, conferences like SLAS over in the US, um, LRIG here in the UK. Talk to um, talk to the vendors um, who will be able to sort of let you know what the latest and greatest things are um, from them. But also go and listen to the talks because there's peers of yours yeah. who um, who've implemented these solutions, uh, and they'll talk about their successes in their presentations, and then. When you get to uh, the beers in the uh, networking event in the evening, go and catch them and find out about, about all of the uh, the failures that happened on the route to uh, to that success. So you don't have to uh, to sort of repeat those. Yeah, that's a great point to network. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, do you think that I mean, based on everything that you said, clearly you're you know obviously you're a big fan of lab automation. But do you think and it goes without saying, I suppose, but. Do you think there's ever a chance where some labs can become too dependent on uh, automation? That's a that's a really good question, and one of the things that I think needs to be um, really clear for uh, for anybody who's kind of working in science and in in this industry is there has to be a level of understanding of how you get to your results or your data. So. You know, we're at a level now for a lot of different processes where you can take your sample, put that into a black box, press a button, and get your results out at the other end. And that can um, be fantastic, but there also really needs to be an understanding of how you get to those results. And um, I think it's important that we build the foundation sort of on the education side of things. So 
knowing those processes of how we get to those results, you know, whether it's basic pipetting skills or how PCR actually works, you know, having had to do the moving the tubes between the uh, between the water baths to really understand that and i think educators as well can really empower how um, their students can be best equipped for the lab of the future or even the lab of today rather than the labs of 20 years ago which is perhaps sort of what is being taught in the colleges and, and universities at the moment so um, a really nice example of that is um, a lab in Uppsala, in, or sorry, the university in Uppsala in Sweden, who are uh, running a course now for uh, specifically for lab automation. So oh. the students there can uh, can actually take part in this course over the course of a few weeks and really understand how different pieces of lab automation work. So one of the pieces in there is uh, is the Flowbot. Uh, together with some microscopy, together with a robotic arm and some scheduling software and understand you know, the nuts and bolts of how all of these things work, which then they can take into industry or into um, their further um, academic careers um, and really help to sort of push things forwards there. That's pretty amazing. I, I think that's probably the only course that I'm aware of, actually, that is you know, linked to lab automation then. Um, as far as I know, it is. Yeah, it's um, it's really exciting that they've got it there in uh, in Sweden, and yeah, we're really honoured that they've uh, chosen the uh, the Flowbot as part of the uh, part of the setup there as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's really good. So, final question then, Dan. Um, you know, I, I don't have many years of experience in this industry. I've come from the outside, uh, and what perplexed me, I guess, in the beginning, or even till this day, in all honesty, is that. Uh, there's not a lot of conversation, and perhaps I can understand why to an extent, but there's not a lot of conversation about return on investment. And, and as I said earlier, I mean, fundamentally, I understand, you know, with science and scientists and so forth, everyone likes to talk about innovation, the next big thing, and, and, and you know, and all the tests and whatnot, and health, and absolutely 100% get all of that. But fundamentally also, it is a, it is a business unit, so to speak. They still have to... To, you know, turn a profit. I don't know many labs that you know could say, you know, I don't worry about the finances or anything like that, and you know, I'll be fine, not to worry. You know, they, they have somebody at least in the lab is worrying about that to an extent. So somebody has to think about the question of, okay, you know, I sat here with Dan. He told me about the flowbots. Great, everything's wonderful. We're going to go ahead. We're gonna... How do you now uh, help them sort of measure the return on investment? That's that's a really good question, and I think it's something that um, that again maybe a lot of people who are looking at specific pieces of uh, of equipment in the lab um, maybe <clears throat> don't necessarily think about until um, they have to put put together a business case to uh, to get the money to uh, to actually buy the equipment, and then all of a sudden they have to sort of think about these sorts of things. So again, I think it's really good to to sort of have those conversations quite early on. And um, when you're thinking about that investment, it's also um, a good idea to kind of factor in a lot of different things as well. So don't necessarily just focus on the big capital expenditure, but think about the costs of things like the time of uh, how long it's going to, uh, to take to get people to trained up on that equipment, how long it's going to take to actually get that implemented and get it um, productive. Yeah. Um, and build all of that into your uh, into your return on investment kind of calculations then for some labs it's fairly straightforward you know they um 
their customers are paying them for results. So the more results that they can put through their lab, the uh, the sooner they can get that uh, that return on investment. So it's quite simple to sort of do that calculation. Uh, for other labs, it can be a little bit more hard, and you have to to think about some of the other um, less um, tangible benefits of bringing the automation into the lab. So you know it could be something um, as um, specific as you know how many hours of time is lost through to uh, through to RSI from uh, from pipetting. Um, so if you have um, a calculation from that, you can then sort of say, you know, we lost over the course of the last year, 100 hours worth of, uh, of staff time that had a specific dollar value on it. So by implementing this particular piece of lab automation, we can re recoup um, those losses. So that's very, that's putting a very sort of significant, specific dollar value onto that. But what it doesn't take into account is actually, you know what, the staff in our lab are a lot happier. Now they're not having to do this and they're not having to take that time off. And you know, that's something that's very difficult to kind of put that dollar value on. So calculating that return on investment, it's important because that's how you're going to get that um, approval to spend the money on the equipment that you know is going to be an improvement for your lab. But Putting together a business case really often has to be a combination of those really tangible dollar values together with sort of the uh, the softer benefits that uh, that a piece of automation can bring in, like you know, happier staff, being able to go and have those really creative conversations with people at conferences where you're not sort of tied to the bench having to do pipetting or uh, transferring plates, you know, delivering plates from uh, from an incubator to a uh, to a plate reader. So really taking both of those factors into uh, into account. No, that's fair enough. And I think perhaps the, the softer side, as you said, I think that's just over time, you can start to measure that. So, you know, you have less people leaving, for example, maybe your productivity improves and, and so forth. But like you said, you can't measure that maybe immediately, but look over the course of a year and say, oh, okay, you know, our... Uh, the exit rate, so to speak, that dropped from, you know, I don't know, 20%, that's down to 5% only now. Okay, so yeah. we're retaining more of our staff now and so forth. So, yeah, it's, these are all great points. And I think also to be able to do the return on investment before, beforehand to know, because there's a lot of choices out there, in fairness, uh, but it's got to be the right equipment, not necessarily mm -hmm. one that's got maybe the best price tag, so to speak, or all these other points that you that you laid out, because, you know, how easy is it to use? How much training is involved? Can I just literally just plug it in within an hour, press play? Thank you very much. Everybody knows how to use it. And if we go. Yeah. All those points. And, are yeah. And, and, you know, I think a lot of time people don't really always take that into account. And even things like the uh, sort of ongoing, uh, ongoing costs for a piece of equipment as well. So you think about that initial capital investment. But then how much is it going to cost over the lifetime of that equipment for things like the, uh, the service and the support for the uh, for the consumables that a piece of equipment uses and for um say for example if you need to have um, application support you know how much is that going to cost for uh, for a piece of equipment so again it can get very very detailed and you can sort of really dig into into a lot of figures there um but at the end end of the day i think putting together a really compelling business case you know, if you're 
um, you know, working in a laboratory, if you're a lab manager and you know that this piece of equipment is going to be valuable for you, it's being able to to really tell that story to whoever's going to sign off on the uh, on the budget. And part of that is these are my figures. This is my spreadsheet. This is where you know we're going to um, have the return on investments on this piece of equipment. But also, you know, this is the other real benefits that this is going to bring into uh, into our lab. Right. Well, Dan, honestly, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks, your Alex. Really good to have you. It's been uh, it's been great chatting to you. Um, I look forward to uh, to speaking again soon.